You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How are the threads of a family history interwoven into storylines? I want to talk to you for a second. I've had a lifelong love affair with reading and books, going back to the early days of elementary school, reading Dick and Jane, if you go that far back. Later on, I consumed every book about sports that I could find. Years later, I had some favorites of people that I read throughout the years, way before I even sat down for interviews. I want to just mention a few names. Michael Connolly, James Lee Burke, Ian Rankin, George Pelicanos, and the great Joseph Heller. Also, I had the privilege of sitting down with second and third generation writers whose relatives are quite famous, and that includes James Jones, John Steinbeck, John Cheever, and even Woody Guthrie. I'm now with the back to check off on my list, my bucket list, this next guest. I have been reading him for years. Every time a book comes out, I rush to the library or the bookstore and I pick it up. This guest's name is Stephen Hunter. Mr. Hunter has written 25 novels. He is the retired chief film critic for the Washington Post, where he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. He's here to discuss his latest book. I believe it drops today. I am thrilled to have some time with it. The book is called Front Sight, and it's three different, I guess, called, called novellas. Mr. Hunter, Larry Davidson, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, Larry. So I'm fascinated by names, names in real life, names in what I call real, R-E-L, which is movies and TV series. And beyond that, just the impact that names have. So let's go to the family tree of the Swaggerts. Where does that name come from? Uh, well, and this was explained in uh, a book I wrote uh, called Targeted. Um, they're actually descendants of a uh, British-Scottish revolutionary soldier named uh, Patrick Ferguson. He's a famous uh, uh, fighter, and uh, he was supposedly the best rifle shot of the 18th century. However, through complications this way and that, he was dead before the original... Uh, he had impregnated the woman who was to be the mother of the Swagger clan, and she escaped in 1780 from behind British lines with a, another young Brit uh, who was a secret agent of sorts. And he had fought with the Indians against the colonials. He had fought with the Cherokee, who fought with, in, uh, with the British against the colonials in Tennessee. And uh, his name, his Indian name, was Walks Boldly. Okay. And in order to uh, translate that, uh, they were looking for a pseudonym for him, uh, his officer and uh, people he knew. And so they just literally translated Walks Boldly from Cherokee to Swagger in English. And all the descendants of that 
decoupling bear the name Swagger. So I'm going to go to your name. This is what fascinates me, the last name Hunter, because a lot of your characters are hunters and or stalkers, stalkers. And I think that runs through a lot of your books. And I don't know if that's a connection to your name, but it's kind of interesting to me. Your last name is Hunter. And a lot of the primary people that you have in your book are hunters of people. And also you have a fair amount of very nasty stalkers. You know, that's an interesting observation. And uh, I'm not sure that it, it's meaningful to me at a conscious level. Uh, the name Stephen Hunter, frankly, is too glamorous for me. It sounds like a 50s movie star. And I've never really felt that I lived up to that name. Yeah, I wish I was better looking and braver and stronger, uh, as would a Stephen Hunter be. Uh, but, uh, you know, you a name uh, sort of with repetition, it loses its, its charisma. Uh, and the name Hunter is just two syllables. That's all it is to me. It has no resonance, as is the name Swagger. Uh, you know, people think that it's a, that I made it up because it's a, a, a to give it a vivid, uh, a, you know, a, a sort of un unforgettability to it. And yet, in fact, I borrowed the name from a very good friend of mine whose name was Swagger. His name was Wayman Swagger. And so the name was real to me. It had no, it had no, uh, it didn't have that vibration. It didn't have that resonation. Uh, and it just, uh, you know, in time it became as mundane to my ear as Jones or Smith or Davis or whatever. And uh, it's not a thing I, at this point, it's not a thing I think about. It, I do, I, I really like the observation though, because names are so important. Uh, to doing this kind of work. And if you don't get the name right, somehow you can't get the character right. And I've got some several characters whose names I don't like, and I wish there was some way to change them now. Uh, I have a character, a British spy named uh, uh, Basil St. Florian. I like the Basil. <laughs> I don't like the St. Florian. I wish I'd come up with a you know, like St. Sebastian or something like that. I wish I'd come up with a better name. And it turns out St. Florian is the patron saint of firemen. For some reason, I had no idea about that. So uh, the only point I'm making is that naming a character is very much a part of the creative process. Sometimes I'll come across a name and I like it and I'll hoard it and I'll wait to use it. Like my one of my uh, grandfather's name was Max Ricker. And I think that's a really cool name. And I'm looking for a place to use it. Uh, I just haven't found the ideal person to be a Max Ricker in a book of mine. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned your grandfather, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There was uh, an article I came across about a quote from a woman who was an artist of Kenyan descent. And she said, when the grandfather dies, you lose a whole library. Can you relate to that in terms of your grandparents down the road that did they impart all the information, knowledge they have to you? And did you miss anything out because you're the quintessential storyteller? Well, uh, in my, you know, all families being unique, 
one of the uniqueness of my families was there was not much of a, uh, a family type of family. My father came from a very uh, intense clan in Missouri, and he hated it. Uh, and one of his sort of theories of life was that, or practices of life, uh, expressing it through it, was to get as far away from that as possible. And as a consequences, consequence, our, our relationships with our grandparents were not particularly uh, vivid or satisfying. Or I mean, I looked at them as a machine for giving me stuff. You know, I was a greedy little bastard of a kid. You know, I liked getting presents from grandparents. Now, I say that, I, and now at this point in my life, however, the grandparent-grandchild relationship is very holy to me because I have two granddaughters and a grandson and a, another grandson on the way. And those children, my bond with those children is so powerful. I literally was unprepared for the love and the totality of commitment, uh, not merely financially, but emotionally, uh, that those kids make me feel. And also, to be quite honest, the vulnerability. I mean, I just... I just I, I just live in in terror that something might happen to them, and things will happen to them. You know that's part of growing up. Uh, but uh, you know, from the grand, I will. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, to, as my life has played out, being a grandfather is far more important to me than, as a child, having grandparents was. I told to remind you, this is the podcast Thoughtful Periscope. My guest is Stephen Hunter. His book comes out today called Front Sight. It's three swagger novels. So let's let's explore the swagger family tree from the grandfather to the father to the son because it's woven through all these books. There is connective tissue there. So how would, how did you how did you set this up? How did you think about this? Originally, you're going to connect all these people because they are connected. They have their strengths but they also have their demons. Well, uh, yes, indeed. And here's how I set it up. Uh, I bumbled into it. It was never a plan of mine. It was never a plot of mine. In fact, uh, right now, as we're, as we're chatting, I'm working on a new book, and it's set in the 1890s in the Southwest, and it's a Western, and it involves a swagger uh, family member who is the actually the grandfather, I'm sorry, yeah, the grandfather of Charles, and his name is Jackson Swagger. And the name of the book at this point is The Gunman Jackson Swagger, and it's based on a Japanese samurai movie. So I, I have really profited uh, by, via the family connections, though that was a total surprise to me. Um, I am, I'm actually sort of stunned at what I have wrought it was not something that was ever planned. It was not something, it was not an ambition of mine. It, it was, it involved issues that uh, had never evinced themselves to me. I just would write a book and it would raise as many questions as it would answer. As it would answer, the only way to answer those questions was to write another book. And somehow all these years later, I've ended up with this, you know, I, I've spent my life, my adult life, essentially 
chronicling the fictional uh, relate, uh, adventures of this this family in uh, East, uh, I'm sorry, West Arkansas, Polk County, Arkansas. I don't think about Arkansas. I'm, I, 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 or when I started, it never occurred to me uh, that I was, you know, beginning a medieval saga or anything like that. Uh, it's just that one thing leads to another. And I was surprised at how much in the writing I enjoyed uh, thinking about and finding out the family connections, the connections of friends, the play of genetics over the whole thing, how one guy would be funnier, another guy would be uh, less humorous, how they would change as they aged, because I've, since they're set in a kind of quasi-reality, they all age, uh, they all, you know, they get sore and they... Uh, they're all wounded, uh, they get hurt badly, and all these things uh, are sort of, I mean, all these sort of endless uh, litany of, of factors of what happens in life, both emotionally and physically, are in play, but not because I put them in play, but because as my mind sifts through the possibility, they seem to come into play on their own. And, and I'm really never planned this. I'm stunned. As I say, I'm stunned, you know, that it exists, as stunned as anyone else is. One of the beauties of your characters in these three novellas or novels is self-discovery, as they connect the dots, as they unweave the mystery of what they're trying to solve. Are you as connected? Are you as in a sense, also thrilled by the fact you're discovering along with them all these threads that they are wrestling with? Yes, I am. Because, uh, uh, you know, you, as a writer, you've got certain tools, certain things you do well and certain things you don't do well. Or people tell, or I put it a different way, things that you enjoy and things that you don't enjoy. I do not consider myself a particularly good plotter. And I am always thrilled if it sort of works out in the end. <laughs> Some of them work out a little bit better than others. Uh, and in all three of these, I sort of, it was like a, it was like a, a this is a quote from a Lacare dust jacket. Someone called uh, George Smiley's quest for the spy, for the mole, a long night walk. And that's kind of, that's a very, to me, that's a very resonant phrase uh, because that's what this has been. And I am always making discoveries, not merely in the plots, because sometimes when I start, I have no idea who done it. Uh, I uh, have no idea who the major characters are going to be. They just sort of announce themselves and arrive to solve a kind of a narrative problem that I might face. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't, uh, I, I just, it, it's, it's all, it's, it's, uh, maybe there's some spontaneity in there that the books capture. Uh, I, I've written books that have been very heavily outlined before, and somehow they're deader, in my opinion, than the books where I'm actively engaged in the story 
making up as I am in the story writing. You know, they're simultaneously. And usually when something arrives from nowhere and seems perfect, it's usually pretty good as opposed to something you thought up one evening four months ago and wrote down on it, you know, on a post-it or a, you know, on an outline. Uh, and you, you, uh, my rule about outlines is you should always know where you're going to go, even if you don't know where you're going to, how you're going to get there. But you should also be willing to abandon everything right. if a much better idea suddenly occurs from you and you deal with where that leaves you the next day. So you mentioned you're not great on plot. I'm going to quote Raymond Chandler, great on character development. And the quote is, he is the hero. He is everything. Can you relate to what Raymond Chandler was saying? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's funny that you should just say that because that was my original epigraph to the book. It was going to be, he is the hero. He is everything. And, uh, I, I'm trying to remember why I decided not to use that. Uh, who knows? You know, you make these decisions, and and maybe that would have been better than what I did use, uh, which was also a Raymond Carver quote. Uh, but I see. I am a believer in the hero. Uh, I'm a '50s guy. I uh, was born in '46, so I basically grew up intellectually or my imagination became functional in the 50s and all that 50s information is urtext to me it's the sort of the foundation of my cerebellum and everything after that is a kind of a it seems like it's a it's a shoddy replacement and that's one reason why i sort of seem to be as a writer unstuck in time or untouched by this time uh i it's like I landed uh, in 1980. I landed uh, in an F-86 Sabre jet wearing blue suede shoes <laughs> from the 50s. And all my, all my, you know, all my values, all my beliefs, all my, uh, you know, everything that is the foundation of my worldview is 50s stuff. And I, I just can't, I force myself to sort of, Try and keep up uh, uh, to uh, spec, but I, I. One of the reasons I enjoy writing my last few books have been set in the past is uh, I'm much sort of happier there than I am today. And the publishers, well, this is not something they like. They mostly would prefer a book sent contemporary. It's eighty years late. Yeah, they like the present. They like the ramifications and the political vibration and all that. I'm not crazy about that. I mean, I've done some books like that uh, because I sense that's what they prefer. Uh, but now I'm happily ensconced in uh, 1892. In these three books, I was ensconced in uh, 34, three stores, 34 and 47 and uh, 78. and. And that was that's fun for me. I, any place there's no such thing as a cell phone <laughs> or the internet, that's okay by me. You know that's all right, but because you can never keep up with the technology anyway. 
So why try? Can I ask you then, is the past, great quote, is the past prologue? Uh, of course it is. Uh, and it's, as you get older, well, I will say as I get older, you feel the past more vividly somehow when you're sort of in the the meat part of your life, you know, when you're supposed to be at your best in your 30s and 40s and 50s, you're so busy careering and working and family raising, you don't think uh, that the past isn't present. But as you get older and less active, uh, uh, the past suddenly seems more vivid. And I, it's, 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 it's more vivid to me now than it was 20 years ago. Uh, you know, I still very, very specific memories of walking to school down Orlington Avenue in Evanston, Illinois in 1953. That's as vivid to me right now as if it took place yesterday as opposed to 60 years ago. So let's reset one more time. This is the podcast, Heartful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Stephen Hunter. The new book is called Front Sight, Three Swagger novels. So what I'd like to do is, and if people haven't read the book, they may know where I'm going. From the first book, the first story, City of Meat, to the second, Johnny Tuesday, to the third, Five Dolls for the Gut Hook. There seems to be, no pun intended, connective tissue, because connective tissue plays a role in terms of discovery and some of these victims that you write about. Uh, I'm glad you see that. Uh, I'm glad that came through. I mean, there is, there is some physical continuity in that we see the same guns, which are important to me, used time after time via three different, uh, three different uh, heroes. Uh, but I hope we see the continuation of of uh, personality, we see where the where they're the same, and where they're not the same. We see. Uh, and I, I hope also that they're reflections of their time. Uh, I hope that you you get a sense of what 1934 was like, or my version of what it was like. I mean, it's it's there's three distinct prose styles. Uh, there's sort of three distinct sets of vernacular. Uh, there's three distinct sets of social relationships reflecting the, the, the situation in society at that time. In one, there's the weight of the depression. In the second, there's very much the weight of World War II. And in the third, there's very much the weight of Vietnam. And uh, you know, in other words, all three of these men have come through vast, uh, extreme trauma and ordeal in their battle experiences, and some, and you know, they 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 differ in the way that happens. One of them, Charles, just suppresses it. Uh, you know, you're always aware that that Charles is a man of secrets. That. What happened to him in the war is something he will not talk about, and uh, he's he's not he's uh, very he's very sick. He knows how injured he is, and uh, and uh, but at the same time, he's also got this very ortho duty 
approach to life. He is the lawman. It is his job to represent justice, and he will die rather than give that up. With uh, Earl, he's uh, he's a little bit looser. Uh, he's I think he's a little bit more cough, uh, confident. He's a very gifted man. I mean, he is a very, very gifted man. And uh, he sees things, he feels things, he's able to do things. I think of the three of them, he's probably the smartest. Uh, and then Bob, uh, you know, Bob came through Vietnam, did three tours in Vietnam, the last as a sniper. He came back a drunk, he came back seriously injured. He came back to a, a, a culture that doesn't really appreciate what he did for it, uh, or doesn't doesn't acknowledge that he did anything for it, and is really willing to pay him a lot of attention. And this is—he's kind of a ruined man when we discover him, and this mystery, this sort of reengaging in civilization, in society—it's. It, I, what I'm implying is this was the, this was the, this was the servo mechanism that restored him and made him the bobbly swagger of the novels of all the other novels. So each one of those is a, it's a different psychological flavor, which is touched by what came before, but is something different. And I hope we're aware. I've tried to make you aware of the permutations without bopping you over the head with them. I'm going to take it one step further, and i tell you where I'm going to go. I'm thinking about the movie In the Heat of the Night. I'm thinking about the newest version of Perry Mason. I'm thinking about what you do in terms of going against the social mores of the time. You pair, pair, pair up, pair up a white man and a black man in each of the novellas. And that was definitely going against the social mores of the times. And I think that was beautifully done, if I get it right. Yes, uh, thank you very much for uh, your sensitivity towards that. That was indeed, race was indeed an issue in each of the stories. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to depict these days what racial conditions were like in the past because uh, it's very ugly. And so what I, 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 what I, I use a license, I award myself a license for time appropriate. That is, I, do, I, I can't make it go away. I can't pretend like everybody is, is happy. I have to indicate, I have to imply the sort of rawness and the ugliness of, of the racial divide in those days. And, and sort of, it, it was important, though, to portray the black people as being extremely capable and extremely brave, and men that the swaggers, each swagger could respect greatly, uh, who were sort of up to his standards, of up to each one's standards in terms of male, you know, responsibility, male courage, uh, male uh, intelligence. Uh, male commitment to duty, uh, and that they can bond in that way. And it's you know the, the swaggers are stubborn cutters. They they're going to set their own standards, and they don't care what anybody says. They don't have to care, and they know that you know they're man killers, and they know that that reputation is going to uh, 
uh, earn them a lot of distance or you know, no, no one's going to challenge them straight up. Uh, so they have a little bit more latitude to express themselves and to be unconformist of, at, at the time. And uh, portraying that was kind of a, was, was A, fun, but, but B, it was also very tricky because I didn't want to go, you know, you said the art is finding the perfect blend between right. historical accuracy and uh, common sense decency. And I, again, that's what I struggled with. Uh, maybe I, I know some earlier versions, some of my uh, my readers were very upset about it, thought I'd gone too far. And so then I went back and I, you know, I filed some of the rougher edges off and I mellowed and I, I chose not to use certain language that was certainly very prominent in this country until maybe this the 70s, the N-word only appears once in the entire book, although it's thought of. Uh, You know, you will understand that a lot of the characters uh, are thinking of it, uh, even if they don't say it. And, uh, you know, that was just, it was a difficult thing to convey, but, you know, I... I tried is all I can say. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Who knows? There's something in terms of the art and craft of storytelling where they say, show, don't tell. So we, yeah. get, we get the feeling you're showing it, but you don't have to tell. We, mm-hmm. we go where you want us to go. Early on when in the introduction, I mentioned, congratulations, by the way, over 20 years ago in 2003, the Pulitzer for movie criticism. What you did in this book, I think you're weaving that knowledge of cinema. Each novella has the author's notes. And I could do a whole interview with you just based on the author's notes that you put into this book. So let's kind of run through them in terms of uh, novella one, novella two, novella three. Because the way that you set it up, everything unfolds from there with the author's notes. So for people who haven't picked the book up and don't know what I'm referencing, how did you approach the author's notes and how did you weave in your appreciation and I believe true love for cinema? Well, it was interesting. Uh, I wish I could say it was a master stroke of uh, my superior uh, uh, artistic genius, but in point of fact, it was more a move of, uh, of uh, desperation than anything. I wrote the the first story I wrote was Johnny Tuesday. And I initially wrote that as a, I, you know, I go through these as a, having a movie mind, I go through sprees. I get uh, caught up in a certain kind of movie and I have to see every example of it made. I did that with Japanese samurai. I did it with musicals. I do it with war movies. Uh, I did it particularly with film noir, which I love. And so I decided to write a perfect film noir. So I went ahead and did that. It was a script, and I thought I did, but no one else thought I did. So it was just a, you know, an unsold file on my computer. And a few years ago, I decided I could make some really easy dough by just transferring the screenplay and turning it into a novel. I thought it would take me a couple of weeks. Well, it took six months, and it was 
miserable every single bloody day. I hated every single moment of it. And I must have quit three times. And uh, finally it was done. And I showed it to a bunch of people. And they didn't get that it was a film noir. So I thought, I thought it was obvious from the prose, from my concentration on the shadowy looks and the colors and the, the, the lingo, the wisecracky lingo of the film noir and uh, 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 Earl's uh, uh, Bogart-like insouciance and if nothing else, the cigarettes and the hats. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> big on both of those. And um, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to give them a framing device. And that way uh, they'll enter the story knowing that it's a film noir. And, and I'm hoping that that will help them sort of appreciate its, 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 its engagement in film noir tropes. And so I did that. And once I'd done that, I realized I had to do it. Well, first I realized I had to write two other stories because it was only 130 pages, which is it's completely unpublishable length. It's too long for a short story and it's too short for a novel. So I thought the only way I could ever get this into print uh, is to write two other novellas. And I thought since one is Earl, that I might as well do Bob and do Charles. And uh, I looked for the opposite years. And since I'd done the Guild War intro, I had to go and do a, a uh, I had to make the other ones, you know, I had to keep it parallel. I had to do right, that too. Right. Now, I will confess to you, Larry, that of the three, the... First one, the social realism of of City of Meat. That's a little thin. That's not the best. You know, I I had trouble I figure out what the what what to call that one. You know what I'm saying? It could also have been I thought of calling it a western because as so much of the iconography is western, right. you know, cows and uh, uh, this sort of the vastness of the uh, Chicago stockyards, very much like the vastness of the prairie, uh, the gunfights uh, facing. Uh, there's uh, several times where they just face each other. Uh, anyway, uh, so I finally settled on social realism, and I, <laughs> I gotta say, maybe that's a little iffy. Okay. Now, the third one... I, I, I just want to interrupt you for a second, because once again, okay. I'm going to use a movie reference, if you don't mind, I apologize. Yeah. Because in the first one, what came to me was the gunfight at OK Corral. Yeah. That's what I popped into my mind. I don't know if you were thinking about that, but that gunfight in the first novella was terrific. So you may think the story was thin, but I disagree. Well, thank you so much, Larry. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Uh, that means I got with it, got away with it one more time. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, the third one, I just, you know, I've been watching these disreputable Italian horror mysteries called Giallo, and I hate to admit how much I enjoyed them. I was so afraid my wife was going to come downstairs and, you know, I'm watching this guy 
slit throats and, and this sort of thing. It, 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 she certainly must have heard the screams and all that. And it came time to write the third story. And since the other two were linked to movies of, the, of their era, since this story, for certain internal reasons, had to be set in the 70s, uh, I, I, to be sort of to fit into the Bob Lee swagger arc, that was, that was the era of Giallo. So I said, okay, I'll try that. And as I said to you before, without much in the way of a plot, I just started typing one night, and things just sort of fell into place. I mean, at some level, somebody was doing some plotting, but it doesn't feel like it was me. Uh, I think the guy who ever did it was pretty good, uh, but it just <laughs> it just it just sort of seemed to the the pieces. You know, I laid out all these pieces, and they seemed to fit together in ways that I found at least quite satisfying. You know, Colin Harrison is a very, very good writer. He's also got a great reputation as an editor at Scribner. And he once said to me, if there's a blonde smoking a cigarette in a hotel lobby, that's trouble. You have some really interesting femme fatales in here, and they are trouble. And in the third novella, there is a, no spoiler alert, there's a huge shock with terms of one of your female characters. Well, yes, it, there was. And uh, in fact, I, I mm -hmm. ascribe <laughs> to my clumsy plotting because the book wasn't written with that person being who she was. In fact, the book was written with someone else having done it. Uh, but then I realized that the person I had picked to have done it was too obvious. And one of the uh, hallmarks of Giallo are these sudden reverses. Sometimes they're completely arbitrary and they make no sense. Uh, <laughs> but this one at least made a little sense. And uh, it's funny, people have responded to that very powerfully, uh, which is extremely satisfying to me. Uh, and yet it was one of the things I thought, again, I hope I could get away with it. I think revoke my author's license or what but but so far so far so good as the man said falling out of the 20-story window so so far so good weapons play a huge role in all of the books these books that you write and i'm just curious if i'm way off base about this because gun control is a very controversial topic in this country yeah and i wonder that you, you impart what I call craftsmanship in a sense of a work of art and machine, the handgun, the rifle, the shotgun. Yeah. And also, I've only picked up a gun one time in my whole life. I was uh, house-sitting for a friend, and he had a gun, I picked it up, and I was amazed how heavy it was. And then I'm going to think. Then I'm going to think about George Policano, who I mentioned before. He has gun violence in his background. As a young man, he shot somebody, and and he's of Greek origin, which the Greeks play a major role in the third novella. How do you view the gun itself, the actual tactile sense of having it in your hand? And the reason why I say that is, I'm a book lover. 
I love having a book in my hand or I like to read the newspapers and get the ink all over my fingers. There's just something about having that. And I think you are a gun historian. So I wonder where that came from. Did you, always, did you have guns in your background? It's just something that fascinates you? Because this is part of what you're famous for, putting in your love and understanding and how weapons can be used or misused. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, and in fact, no, I did not have guns in my background. It was very much the opposite. And uh, if you want to make, if you want to raise a child as a gun lover, lover, forbid him, make him think guns are taboo, because that gives them the uh, uh, the sheen of uh, charisma that they might not otherwise have. I try and portray guns as most gun people see them as tools not as demons. Those seem to be the prevailing theories of firearms in this country. Um, and as tools and or machines, I find them fascinating. Uh, I always have. It's not something I decided to cook up for marketing purpose. In fact, if, if anything, it was the other way around. I wanted to write books in which the guns were uh, uh, accurately observed uh, and they were used in ways that they could be used as opposed to, you know, preposterous things of somersaults and all that sort of stuff. And um, it's important to me, you know, each gun, you interact with the gun via your hand, and each gun feels different in your hand. And as you, you get to know, and if you can master or come, you know, look at poor Alec Baldwin. Well, he's not poor, but he didn't know that gun. He didn't know what he was doing. And had he taken, you know, an hour in practice with that gun and got used to it and figured out how it worked, that whole terrible thing uh, wouldn't have happened. And my people are professional gun handlers. They make their living with guns, as do police, as do soldiers, as do, uh, you know, hobbyists and that sort of thing, as do people in the industry. And uh, I try to get that, the palpability of how the gun feels, as opposed to taking it for granted. And that's just something I frankly enjoy doing. And as you say, it's become something of a trademark for good or, or bad. I'm a huge fan of episodic TV because if it's done right, it's really a novel unfolding from episode to episode, just like your, just like your novels are unfold, unfolding in front sight. And I'm thinking about, because I believe at one point you worked at the Baltimore Sun. Yeah. I think David Chase was there. I consider... Yeah, David Simon. David Simon. Thank you, David Simon. And Laura Lippman was there, by the way, too, at one point. And... The, just the way that The Wire was terrific storytelling, better than The Sopranos, and more recently, based on Elmore Leonard's books, Justified. Episodic TV, telling a story as it was written as a book, and both Raylan Givens is also an avenging angel, just like some of your characters. He has a moral code. He goes off the reservation but he still has a moral code. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I agree with you uh, 
about episodic television, I have to tell you, I don't know David very well. I don't know Laura very well. And I, I just sort of, while I was at the Sun, I kind of stayed out of that orbit. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I mean, the newspaper was a very, uh, it's a very complicated organization as it's in any, uh, as is any uh, office, any workplace. Uh, and there are orbits, there are cliques, there are groups uh, affiliated. The Sun was actually three papers. It was the Morning Sun, the Evening Sun, and the Sunday Sun. And they were three separate tribes. And I never really, uh, I, I, see, I had sort of preceded the two of them. I was actually publishing before either of them published. And I was the chief of a little tribe. And then they published, and they became chiefs of their little tribe. Right. And, uh, you know, just as the Pawnee and the Apache uh, never got along, I guess they never got along, but it was just sort of easier for everyone to pretend like the other people didn't exist. That being said, I have, uh, of the last uh, 10 years or so, since I've been retired, I do watch a lot of episodic TV. You mentioned Perry Mason, and I thought that was terrific. I just thought that was that the modern Perry Mason uh, with, uh, what's his name, Matthew Rice. Right, uh, from the Americans. Yeah. He was in the Americans. Well, I, I didn't see that. Maybe I should go back and catch that. But I have really, really enjoyed I'm now watching Jodie Foster in, <laughs> what is it, Night something, Night Journey or Night City or true, something. True, like de true Detective. It's the new one. It just came out. Yes, that's right. And that's it's, ama it. it's amazing just the way it's shot because it's so dark. It is dark. Yes, it is dark. And Jody is dark. I mean, I just, uh, I've actually interviewed her. And she's this bright, happy young woman, you know, very, uh, very charismatic and really has a really vivid personality. And to see her in that sort of dark, uh, in that sort of role of such dark complexion and such heavy memory is always, uh, it just shows the genius of acting. I mean, that's, that's a real talent if you can do that. And uh, she's an enormous talent. But I, you know, I've watched dozens, I've watched lots of British things. I've seen all the, uh, I've seen all the Poros. Uh, you know, I've seen Slow Horses. I've seen, oh, Mick Herring. Yeah, that, that's yeah. great. It, you name it, I've seen it. I've done, seen the Pacific probably four or five times and Band of Brothers four or five times because of my, World War II uh, uh, fixation, and uh, as I, I really do think that the series television is, a, is much more hospitable to a novel than is the feature film. A uh, feature film would be good at novellas or short stories, but any self-respecting novel is too dense and too complex and goes through too many changes to really accommodate uh, you know, a a uh, um, a novel. So, uh, so I have to ask you then, because one of your books became the was it Mark Wahlberg movie Shooters? Yeah, yeah. Did you like the way it was done? Because somebody told me, Nelson DeMille told me, when you turn your book over to Hollywood, you that's it. 
you've lost control. They're going to take it wherever they want to go. Probably got paid well for it, but once it's in their hands, you're out of the mix. That's absolutely true. Uh, they were good to me. I can't say they were, you know, in any way rude. They were generous. Uh, they, uh, you know, I financed my kids' graduate school in, uh, education off of their contributions to the, the coffers. Um, uh, Mark was a very decent young man to me, called me Mr. Hunger. And he said, Mr. Hunger, I hope we get to make all of your books. I thought the movie was very good up until the last 30, well, eight or 12 minutes. That ending with uh, Bobby Swagger going to some, <laughs> just like some doctor outside of Moscow, I guess it was supposed to be a hunting lodge and executing all those right. people, including the, including, what was he, the vice president, the Ned Beatty character, I can't. That I didn't care for because I didn't think Bob would do that. And, uh, you know, Bob is not a murderer. He's not an assassin. He's a soldier. And he kills in battle when he has to. He doesn't particularly enjoy it, but it's part and parcel of his gift. And someone's going to do it, and it's better that someone who knows what he's doing does it rather than... It, it's just... You know, there's just a subtle, to me at least, there's a subtle moral difference. And I did not think that that ending particularly worked. And I did send them a memo or an email proposing another ending. I understand that they didn't think that the, they, originally they had my, something similar to my ending. And uh, it, it just didn't play well in test screenings. So they panicked and they threw that ending on literally a week before the movie was released. Right. I, think that, I don't even think Antoine Fuqua, the director, very good director, I don't think he even did it. Uh, you know, it's probably done by, uh, you know, some guy walking down the hall or something like that. Anyway, uh, I, I thought that, to me at least, that left a sour taste in the movie. And I wish, I, I wish. I think that's one of the reasons why the movie was adjudged to be a flop, and no matter how they wanted to, they don't. There probably aren't going to be any more Bobby Swagger movies, and maybe no more Steve Hunter movies. So I'm going to give you the answer to that, the antidote: director's cut. Bring out the director's cut, change the ending, and maybe you'll be ha happier with that. So what we're talking about the movies. What about the TV series of Bobby Swagger? Yeah, that was... Uh, did you see that I was in it? Well, I did see it. I'm going to have to go back and oh, watch it again. Oh, uh, yeah. I had played a very uh, small part in the first episode as a gun store owner, and I delivered a line very poorly. Uh, 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 anyway, I thought the first series was uh, reasonably good. I thought it got a little... It sort of science fictionized it. And it, it then, it got further and further from the books as they progressed. And the last two episodes, the last two years of the series, I couldn't even understand it. I couldn't stay with it. It had gotten so far from the book. Uh, and uh, again, you know, I cashed the check. 
And I will say they were very good to me. Uh, uh, trying to remember Ryan, uh, I can't remember the name of the young actor, uh, but he was a very he was very decent to me. And uh, that you know I have no bad memories of of that. And uh, you know if you take the money, you 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 know you you know you take the king's it's the king's money. Right, you take it. Right. And you do what the king tells you to do. So that was that. It's interesting you mentioned Ryan Filippi. I believe that's, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so in, in, they killed him off in Big Sky, which I I've been, I watched both seasons of, which was also on TV not too long ago. Because they actually killed him off, which was too bad because I really liked him. So, Mr. Hunt, we every we end every episode with the chance for the guests to criticize me. So in terms of that, feel free. What did I miss? What did I get wrong during? I, our, you were, I, I will say this. This is a unique interview because you were primarily concerned with craft and psychology, and only at the end did you sort of get to the Hollywood stuff. I had checked, uh, you know, the website out. I looked at some of the other episodes, and I was expecting what I got, which is someone who thinks hard about the way fiction works, and um, uh, I. I actually appreciated and enjoyed that. I was on one last night. I won't mention the thing. It was just, it was just awful. <laughs> it was the longest hour of my life. And everybody on it except me thought they were the next Leo Tolstoy. It's not quite true. I'm exaggerating. But it was a painfully long hour. And this feels like it's been five minutes. And I, well, that's the highest compliment I can give you. Well, I appreciate that. I don't know if it's warranted or not, but once again, I want to thank my guest, uh, Stephen Hunter. The book is called Front Sight, Three Swaggers Novels. Um, I can check you off my bucket list because I have been reading you for years, and this has been a big thrill. I had a lot of anticipation going into this interview, and you made it a pure joy for me and, by extension, my audience. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Larry. Bye-bye now. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, Visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she